Hey, this is Gavin Wood, bringing Countdown back to 6 o'clock Sunday night. I'll recap the national top ten from days gone by. And you can dance. And chat exclusively with the big names from the Countdown days. Glenn Shorick. Kate Soprano. Ivor Davies from Ice House. And it all starts with Daryl Braithwaite. It was pandemonium. You didn't really know how it all came together or whatever, but that ABC, they did it very, very well. Sunday night from 6 on Gold 104.3. WSFM, the 80s on iHeartRadio. On Classic Hits, 4KQ and 96FM. Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. Proudly brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Hi, this is Ivor Davies from Ice House, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. And welcome to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. I am very excited to be speaking with a singer, a songwriter, a composer, a multi-instrumentalist, record producer, a man that has won so many awards and has produced and recorded and made so many hits. The one and only Ivor Davies. Ivor, g'day. G'day. Thanks for having me. Mate, it's a pleasure to have you. I've admired your work right from the flowers. We can get together for a debut song. That was just one of the best songs, and uh, and congratulations on it, mate. You've been going more than 40 years, and uh, we can we can get together. Started you all off. Well, we're still playing it. Um, yeah, it's amazing, really. It, it's a great it's a great song. Um, it was uh, interesting. Thank you. Um, uh, but. You know, we started off, obviously, as a covers band. It was just a hobby thing, really, and then it all got really serious, apparently. Um, and somebody had to write songs, and I, Muggins here kind of got the job. Um, but I really didn't know how to write songs, and um, the first few efforts took forever. But I seemed to be right. getting better with practice, and We Can Get Together at the time was probably almost the most recent song I had written. And so it was sort of surprising. I guess I guess practice makes perfect i suppose applies to songwriting as anything else but uh, yeah it was a brand new sort of fresh song at that point now you're a multi-instrumentalist tell me about the bagpipes that intrigues me uh, right yes okay this is a hard one to explain um i grew up in the country in wagga wagga in uh, regional new south wales and my father suggested to me i must have been very small four four years old or something like that but um, there was some kind of parade going down the main street of Wagga Wagga, like a, most big country centres that has a main street, and everything happens on yeah. the main street, and there was a parade mm. going on, and then I heard this extraordinary sound, and then it got louder and louder and louder. It was the sound, it turned out, of the, the local St Andrew's Heather Pipe Band, and it was a, you know, a bit of a spectacle too, because you had those drummers twirling sticks and all that sort of stuff, and the kilts and the... And I was absolutely mesmerised and I insisted and bugged my parents literally for a couple of years to learn how to play the bagpipes. They took me to see the local pipe major and he looked at my hands and said, come back and and, uh, and see me again when he's seven. Uh, because my hands were just too small <laughs> to actually of course. get over even yes. a child's version of the bagpipes. But I did learn how to play the bagpipes and I marched with that band. And in fact, a brand new television station, RVN2, which is still there, um, mm. Apart from the local uh, military band playing the national anthem, I was the first person on television in Wagga playing the bagpipes, believe it or not, at the age of nine. Wow. 
Do you still have that footage? I, I don't have the footage, unfortunately. I still have the pipes, though. The child's oh. <laughs> size set of bagpipes, yeah. You tend to put all the instruments that you can play on record, so maybe we can hear, we'll hear those, uh, those childlike bagpipes in a, a song that you're going to do in, in the future. Well, they were already there. In fact, uh, the album that followed up Man of Colours was Code Blue, and on a, the introduction of a song called Wind and Sail... There I am playing the bagpipes. Fabulous, fabulous. Now, you went on to learn and play the oboe, which is a very difficult instrument to play. How did you go with it? Well, I kind of got the oboe given to me by default because when I moved to Sydney and went to my first day at high school, we, we dragged around all the various subject uh, teachers and, and went to my first music lesson and the music, music teacher asked, is there any, any, any of you boys play an instrument? And there were a couple of standard sort of, you know, a piano here and a trumpet there and a whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I said, yes, sir, bagpipes, and he just about died on the spot. You could see the blood drain from his face. And, he, and I remember his words, his actual words were, ah, well, I think you should learn to play something more sociable. My wife is an oboe teacher. There's a spare oboe in the storeroom. Turn up to my house after school on Thursday. And that was it. I went to my first oboe lesson, not really even knowing what an oboe sounded like. How fabulous. It's nearly as bad as saying you play the banjo. Uh, yes, or as they say, uh, the least used uh, phrase in the uh, English language is that the banjo plays Maserati. Um, <laughs> I've, I have not heard that. That is funny. That is um, so funny, man. Anyway, no, apparently I've got to be very good at the oboe because I won a scholarship to the, um, the New South Wales uh, Conservatorium of Music and, um, and I ended up being a professional. In fact, I was in the... Uh, I was in the orchestra for the very first uh, opera performed in the Sydney Opera House, and I was only 18 uh, at that point. Wow. So, yeah. yeah, I probably should have ended up being a professional orchestral um, oboist, but I didn't. I kind of went sideways at some point. Yeah. So who were your early influences, Ivor? What made you, you know, get this lust to get into and make music? Um, well... I started oboe lessons about the age of 13, but that was also when my brother took off for London. He's been eight years older than me, and he left behind his acoustic guitar. So that was kind of a pivotal moment because over the summer holidays, I taught myself how to play it, and I ended up playing with a couple of other guys who were both songwriters. I wasn't a songwriter. I was kind of the spare wheel of the trio, really. Right. But we got heavily involved in kind of the the folk scene that still existed that was a lot of which was based around the protest movement for the Vietnam War and so I ended up playing with them at great big kind of moratorium concerts and protests and all sorts of stuff uh, and we even recorded an album it never got released um, unfortunately but um, that's all of their songs and, and me kind of tagging along really Right. Um, so I had these two parallel lives going on right up through my late teens, I had serious classical side and I had a kind of, you know, folky type of side as well. And, and uh, when eventually I kind of gave up playing the oboe, because I really did have a kind of weird relationship with the oboe, I kind of hated it and loved it, but yeah. hated it mainly. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then that left me in my early 20s really just kind of loose and bought my first solid body electric guitar on, actually on the day of my 21st birthday just happened to come up the one i was looking for came up in the paper and advertised and um what was it what brand it was a gibson sg oh if you don't mind umpire you've opened up the batting very strongly 
Well, with a hundred watt Marshall, uh, oh, I yes, <laughs> um, and 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 as it was, I was in a in a flat in an old mansion in probably the quietest suburb in in Sydney, called, a place called Linfield, very conservative, right. with a hundred watt Marshall and an SG, and <laughs> so it, it wasn't long before the neighbours you know worked out what was going on in that flat, and I happened to clean the squash courts next door. Um, as part of my kind of uh, efforts towards the rent. And one of the manageresses there had a son who was a bass player, and she'd overheard me playing this Gibson SG and said, oh, my son plays the bass, would you like to meet him? Anyway, that was Keith Welch, that was the co-founder of Flowers. Oh, okay. And that was where the band started, really. Gee, gee. Have you still got that Gibson? I actually sold that fairly quickly. I fairly quickly worked out that it wasn't going to give me the sound that I wanted, and I went straight to a Les Paul. Um, and of course, um, that was the guitar for me at that point of time, and that's certainly the one that's on the Flowers um, album. Um, my guitar hero was Mick Ronson. Um, you probably yes. know yeah. him from his work with David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars. Of course. Um, so that was what I modelled myself around, and and. Um, uh, yeah, so the SG, uh, I moved on, and it was actually bought by the, the lead singer, Fred, from uh, Machinations, and, and he was a local, and yeah. uh, I asked him whether he still had it. I don't know, he's floating around out there somewhere, so... Yeah, pretty heavy guitar. They were heavy ones back then, weren't they? Well, the Les Paul is probably the heaviest guitar ever built. Um, yes, And yeah. I hadn't played one until quite recently, for probably... 35 or 40 years, and I couldn't believe the sort of weight that I had to carry around the stage. (laughs) Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Ivor Davies from Ice House, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. Now, tell me, Ice House... By Flowers, that was the name of the first album, which is your debut album, and uh, it uh, it was the highest selling debut album in Australia in in 1980. I mean, you, you started off so successfully. Did you think the music industry was easy? Uh, no, not at all. Because uh, what it was really what kind of went on before that release that was really the defining thing. Because what a lot of people don't probably realise when a record like that comes out and goes zooming straight up the charts, we'd been playing for three years. And when I say playing, um, it started off as kind of fun weekends and whatever, but as soon as a serious management, and it was a serious management uh, that got involved because they managed the, the Angels and Cold Chisel. And right. we worked incredibly hard. We were doing nine shows a week and sometimes, which is, you know, at oh, least wow. two nights doing two shows and sometimes do a week like that with an overnight drive from Melbourne to Sydney in the middle of it. And it was absolutely mm. relentless. And um, and it's no wonder we were also skinny as rakes. You know, we were still carting our own gear at that point and, um, and absolutely, you know, wrecked all the time. And it was under yeah, those circumstances that we went in to record that first album. And the management... Uh, had not done this by accident and their philosophy was pretty simple and pretty effective and that was it said by the time you get to release your first record you will have played to so many people in australia that there'll be a ready-made number of a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand people who you know are automatically going to go out and buy your record and it, it that was exactly what happened that's a great philosophy now tell me how did you come up with flowers 
for a name? Um, it was a kind of weird um, sort of multi... I had a girlfriend um, uh, back before the band started and she dragged me to a show. Um, it was a stage, a theatre production. Um, and in fact, it was uh, Lindsay Kemp's um, mime company. And Lindsay Kemp being a very famous British uh, mime artist. Mm-hmm. Sort of strange thing to go to, but it was a spectacular show. And it was quite um, sort of one of those things that kind of, for a young person was so unusual that it kind of made a really big impression on me. And I think the show was called Our Lady of the Flowers. It was based on a Jean Genet book, a very famous French uh, novel. Okay, yeah. Um, now, I actually had... And so I kind of picked this name partly for that reason, but partly also that because we're in the middle of the kind of... or the beginnings of really the hardest core of punk uh, fashion, uh, and the pubs in, in, in Australia were pretty dangerous places to put put it to put it mildly um that's my next question <laughs> well the thing was that i'd never been in a pub right. um, when okay. i met keith and we started playing i mean the first time i went in a pub was when we actually went to play in a pub yeah um so i'd never i had no idea what to expect and in a kind of way it was sort of a almost a punk gesture to pick a name like that where you're almost inviting people to throw things at you um, <laughs> that that we were going to go in and play and our defense was um kind of the opposite that is we played really loud and we played hard and fast and so you blew their heads off the, yeah we came into it was it's like we, we, it's, it, we as long as we don't get murdered before the first note we play, then we'll be fine. Because as soon as we start playing, yeah. um, we're, we're going to kind of take this place apart. And that's pretty much sort of what happened. But it was a kind of dangerous name to have, I must say. Yeah, yeah. So after that highly successful album, um, you, you, you changed your name to the title of the first album, Ice House. Now... Ice House seems to be a, a, a running thing. How did you come up with Ice House? What happened was, well, look, I had a sort of random idea. Um, uh, the place that I lived in for a start was this big old mansion. It was subdivided into apartments. Beautiful place, but absolutely yeah. impossibly cold. Like, like we are talking sort of unnaturally freezing. Um, and so that was an environment that I, and remembering, of course, I had no money, so I couldn't even afford to buy a heater, let alone pay the power bill. I, I found, a, I found mm. a hardware store that sold bags of coal, and there was a fireplace in it. So that was, that was the best that yeah. I could do. But across the road, there was a very strange mm-hmm. old mansion, that was two, another two-story mansion. And what was strange about that was I was up, I had really mad sort of young person-type hours. You know, I was up all night quite often. And I noticed that the lights never went off in this place, and it really intrigued me. There was a kind of floating population. You'd see somebody go up the street to get the paper in the morning, and you'd watch them for three months, and then they'd disappear, and then there'd be somebody new, and it was quite odd. So I wrote mm-hmm. this song, and I found out afterwards what was going on there. It was actually it was like a halfway house for psychiatric patients, so people who were being brought back into a society um, having yeah, been institutionalised. Yeah. And so that was why it had a kind of strange vibe about it. Um, so that was where the song came from. The reason we had to change... Well, we had to change our name because um, 
we used it successfully in Australia and New Zealand, but when we were signed to an international record company, they said, well, we're just going to do a little search to see whether anybody else is going to challenge the use of that name. Well, there were a number of people. There was a band in Scotland called Flowers. There was the very famous right. uh, session bass player, Herbie Flowers, um, and you know yes, his work from yeah. the opening of Lou Reed's Walk of the Wild Side. That's Herbie Flowers. Yeah. Um, there yeah. are a bunch of people. In fact, the international record company had a kind of internal staff competition to rename us and came up with some of the most hideous names that you can possibly imagine. Um, <laughs> but by then, we'd already released the album called Ice House, and we thought, no, well, we're known by two things in Australia and New Zealand. We're known by the name Flowers, which you can't use, and, and the name Ice House, which we can use. And yeah. so it was our default title, really. And how, how you grew into that was sensational. I mean, it was a, a great period for you, the early 80s, and uh, you picked up most popular male performer on on the Countdown Awards in 83, Congratulations again on that. Thank you very much. And, uh, and indeed, you, you, you talked a little bit about the change of name, but that was quite a countdown moment because <clears throat> um, on Humdrum, Molly went especially up to the snowfields in Victoria. Yeah. And he had a copy of the Flowers album and announced the change of name to Ice House. I remember that. And I believe it was the very first time he wore the hat. Ah, memorable. You see, I'd forgotten about that. That's amazing. That's a... And so he sort of threw this copy of the album over his shoulder into the snow, and, and uh, yeah, that was the first time we saw Molly with the hat, and so that was, I'm, I'm very proud that we were involved in that moment, it's a bit of a landmark, that one. Well, what a great trivia question that is. Yeah, indeed, so, exactly. So, uh, from the success and your, your award, Icehouse gets to uh, support David Bowie on a European tour, now... My head is blown. Mine too. The, the thing, what was remarkable about that was that um, we we put out a song in, in Europe called Hey Little Girl and it was a big success. And I guess then kind of the phone started ringing really in the management office because um, we were approached to go and do these amazing supports and we were invited to tour with Peter Gabriel who was enjoying a big, um, uh, big career at that point. Uh, but then, and I had this conversation with David Bowie, believe it or not, um, um, after it was all up and running, and he said, I, I heard your song on the radio, and you never know who's going to be listening, and, and that was where, you know, you got the phone call, because I heard, hey, little girl, and went, went okay, I want those guys to tour with me, and it was amazing. It was um, it was by far David Bowie's biggest tour ever. It was We were playing to... 45,000 people, 70,000 people, you know, 70,000 wow. people again. Wow. It was just massive. Um, yeah. And, you know, I really got to see what life was like at the kind of ridiculously big end of, of you know, fame and fortune, really. Yeah. And David Bowie, an absolute gentleman, wasn't he? Yeah, indeed. And and what a band. they had, yeah. He had the most incredible band, a very big band. It was... Um, and great guys, you know, you know, incredible musicians. And uh, I remember turning up uh, kind of to the backstage area of the first of three shows at Milton Keynes, which is about an hour outside of London. Um, and that was where his sort of, London, you know, his, his UK London dates were going to be, was on this hillside. And we drove in uh, to the backstage area, and there were about 10 buses there, 10, you know, full-size coaches. Yeah. And I turned to the guy who was driving, and I said, "What are the what are the buses for?" And he said, "Oh, that's for the crew." Oh! I, I, I looked at him and I said, "You need ten buses for the crew." 
you know it's just it was just ridiculously big yeah that's a that's a tour in itself indeed mm. now i i think i made a blue here i uh flowers first song was i can't help myself correct i can't help myself was the first single and the second single was we can get together we can get that's together correct. yeah so my bad yeah i, I i've actually <laughs> to tell you the truth Ivor, I've, I've got that on my radio uh um presentation uh um uh, you know like a promo for for my voice and everything like that it's me introducing flowers and we can get together on 3xy when i was doing breakfast there oh God. So, right okay so you stay with I'm me not... you've stayed with me all these years <laughs> right excellent now tell me about boxes this is this is really interesting i i want you to tell me all about it because i think it's fabulous well um we had a smart manager at the time and he, he, he worked out that because of my training and background and so on that, you know, if I got on the kind of quite specialised singular wheel of just writing an album and recording an album, you know, doing the press for an album and then doing a tour for an album and just repeating that cycle endlessly that I would probably get pretty bored. Um, and at the time, the Sydney Dance Company were were not only kind of young and hip, but they were also quite dangerous. They were doing sort of, were doing, you know, one of Graham Murphy, he's the choreographer and, and artistic director and founder of the uh, of the Sydney Dance Company, and one, one of his ballets, you know, they were, were required to dance completely naked for the entire ballet. Well, Graham was totally and, ahead of his time, wasn't he? Well, he, he was, and it was um, it was intriguing, and I went along to see them, and... And Graham Murphy also recognised that um, that we had a different audience to him, you know. That, but there was kind of there was a kind of crossover in a weird sort of way. I, 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 I'll give you an example of how weird it was. Um, when we, you know, put together um, the two elements, the Sydney Dance Company and Graham Murphy and me, mm. uh, with the music, and they did an incredibly dangerous thing. They said, we're going to do on a Friday and a Saturday night, and this was at the Opera House, performed at the Opera House. Right. We're going to put on um, the ballet at the usual time, at, you know, 8.30 or 8 o'clock or whatever it would be. And then we're going to do do it all again at 10.30 at night with a second um, performance. Right. And the Opera House staff, and powers in there thought we were completely insane. They said nobody goes to shows at the Opera House at 10.30 at night. Mm. It's never been done. It's impossible. It'll be a disaster. And they did come at 10.30 at night. And, of course, that was all of my kind of pub audience, you know. They yeah. were used to going to shows at 10.30 at night. Sure. So I don't think it's ever been done before or since, um, but that kind of gives you an idea of how uh, original Graham Murphy's thinking was because he that was completely outside the box, that idea. So did you write some of the music for the ballet? I wrote all of the music for the ballet. Wow. Um, and performed in it as well, uh, not dancing, thankfully, um, uh, but singing. Um, and so it was a proper, um, you know collaboration it was it was kind of a and the other thing about it too was that uh by then i was using uh, an amazing machine an australian invention called the fairlight which was the world's first sampler now yeah, fantastic uh, that probably doesn't mean anything to a lot of people but it was an incredible piece of uh, music technology but it was also capable of producing some incredibly 
challenging sounds and a lot of boxes is quite challenging sort of electronic music. Um, and so in a lot of respects, boxes was a very kind of groundbreaking piece of work mm. um, because it had all these elements that were kind of untested, I guess. Oh, yeah, good sounds. Indeed. Do you think uh, boxes would work today? Um, it possibly would. Um, mm. I remember uh, we didn't perform it anywhere else except the Sydney Opera House, and there was a very good reason for that. The the Opera House um, stage um, had a kind of secret weapon on it, right. and that was that in the centre of the stage there was a great big circular um, uh, area, and what people didn't really realise was that three stories down there was a massive set of hydraulics and this entire big circular centre of the stage could actually not only be uh, dropped down below and replaced it was a way of changing sets quickly was what it was designed for right gotcha um however um what graham murphy did was commission a a great big structure it was kind of like a a wooden scaffolding cube i guess is mm. the best way to describe it and it weighed 20 tons cool. and the entire this sat there in the middle of the stage with me in, inside it uh performing every now and again and the dancers going in and out of it and so on and this was kind of the box i guess of boxes yeah um but right at the end of the ballet this entire structure started to rotate and i remember looking out um to the crowd um every every night and looking at everybody's faces they sort of jaw dropping when they saw suddenly <laughs> 20 tons starting to revolve slowly. Oh. <laughs> uh, it was an amazing moment and unfortunately um the opera house has since basically gotten rid of that that that, that, that no longer exists so oh dear. uh it's hard to imagine boxes without that so could it be done today well possibly in another theater that might have that same sort of trick in it but yeah. i yeah. Um, in a way i'm kind of glad that it you know it was of its its moment. I'm speaking with Ivor Davies, of course, of Flowers and Ice House. Now, Ivor, you got into film uh, writing sound sound scores. You you won the APRA Music Award for most uh, performed Australian music on a film. That was uh, Russell Mulcahy's Razorback. How did that happen? Um, uh, well, as you know, Russell Mulcahy uh, was probably the, the the world's most famous music video director and this was uh, right at the beginning when uh, mm. when mtv didn't even exist mm. um so by the time mtv opened up and this became a very big part of a career for any uh, performer was to have your music videos broadcast all over the world um russell by then was doing the most famous people in music he was doing videos for elton john and for duran duran and all the big name bands and that, and that and beautiful did. that beautiful piece, and I'm still standing, where you see him right at the end of the line of the people. You know, he put himself in that, and it was one of the most amazing film clips you'd ever see. That I'm still standing clip. Right now, that, this is um, something new to me. I, I didn't know about this, so this has got something I've got to check out. Yeah, but the, he um, he did three, I think at least three clips for us. Um, so we kind of worked together before. Yeah. Um, and it was a couple of Australian uh, producers, I think, approached him and said, listen, you, you're doing all these clips and so on, but what about you make a feature film? And he came, Russell came to me and, and asked me to do the music for it. It was all being shot in Australia and so on. In fact, it was an Australia, very Australian story about a, a, a rogue uh, 
wild pig, pig I guess. <laughs> pig, yeah. The only way you can describe it. Um, <laughs> the killer pig, I think we can refer to it. That's it. Um, and, um, and that was kind of jumping in the deep end for me because I really didn't have a clue about um, film music at all. In fact, I, I had a number of kind of aborted attempts. Um, Russell was out in the outback uh, filming and I'd get these what's called rushes. These are the, mm-hmm. the, the bits of film that they've filmed that day and so on. And I'd get them back, and every now and again there was a shot of Russell Mulcahy, uh, you know, at night with the lights going and so on, carrying a ghetto blaster. And, and, and on this ghetto blaster constantly there seemed to be this... It was a particular song from Peter Gabriel that I knew well. It mm. had a lot of drumming in it and so on. It's from Peter Gabriel's fourth album, I think it was. So anyway, when it came time for me to write music for the film, I started sort of pumping out, you know, things that sounded a bit like Peter Gabriel's fourth album. Right. And... The producers kept ringing me up and going, no, 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 that's all wrong, that's all wrong. And in the end, I, I had a few goes and I tried a few different things. And in the end, I ended up using the Fairlight, we talked about that machine, to uh, to produce what was you know, pretty much really an orchestral score in the style of Stravinsky, so a pretty wild orchestral score. Mm. And the producers rang me up and said, yes, that's it, that's it. And I, I remember saying to them, well, if you want an orchestral score why didn't you hire an orchestral composer <laughs> anyway yeah. um it, everybody seemed happy in the end and it, yes it did win that award so i was very happy yeah well i i uh, lived in uh, la for 12 years and just got back recently and uh, i'd see russell at the local starbucks so i'm sure russell uh, mulcahy will be uh, listening and uh, so hello russell a uh, good mate of mine and yours right. and yours too over Indeed, we had some adventures on making those film clips. I think probably Street Cafe, the song called Street Cafe, was the wildest one. That was in Tunisia, and we used all the uh, all the locations for the very newly shot uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, okay. And um, and uh, Russell got it into his head. I'd make a great Indiana Jones. So. Um, uh, that's the explanation behind that rather strange music video. <laughs> yes, well, you, you, I, I can see you doing that. Now, in 1988, you actually jo- joined with John Oates from Hall & Oates and you uh, picked up the APRA Music Award for Electric Blue from the uh, Man of Colours album. That, that, that must, did he collaborate on the whole album or just, uh, on, or, or just on Electric Blue? Um, that was an extraordinary situation because much, much, much earlier, I think 1982... I was sitting in the Adelaide airport, I think we just landed, and he, this fellow with a moustache, wandered over to me holding a copy of uh, what was then our brand new album, Primitive Man, and said, hi, I'm loving your album, I bought it yesterday, my name is John Oates. And wow. Shook my, ha- shook my hand and wandered off into the airport, and I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. That is. And then about five years later, we were on tour, I'd forgotten about that completely, and he tracked me down in New York. We were we were in America and said, "I've got to write songs with you." And I, I'm not very good with kind of collaborating with people, especially in the songwriting situation. I tend to lock myself up on my own, mm. and um, so I made a lot of excuses. I said, "Oh no, I'm, I'm in the middle of the tour. Oh, I'll wait until the tour's finished. Oh, I've got to go back to Australia. Oh, I'll come to Australia." And he did, and um, we spent probably only a bit more than a week together um, in my little home studio. Mm. And uh, wrote uh, Electric Blue, and then it was sort of not really finished when he was time for him to leave. But I, I remember he was absolutely he stood in the doorway and said, "You promised me you're going to record this and put it out as a single because it's a, a hit." 
And if you don't, let us know because all of those will record it and it will be a hit. Yeah. And I really wasn't convinced at all at the time. And okay. guess what? He, he was right. He was right, of course, yeah. Well, what a song. I mean, that's one of your signature songs, Electric Blue. Just, just you know, it's, uh, it's etched in the uh, Australian music history there. Well, I was thinking about it um, yesterday because, believe it or not, I was researching the Eagles' um, Take It Easy for yeah. whatever reason. And, of course, that's an iconic song. It was the Eagles' first mm. um, first release, first single. And, um, you know, I was reading through Wikipedia, as you do, um, about the various people who played on it and all that sort of stuff. And it said, uh, charted at number 12 in the Billboard USA charts. And I went, wow, Electric Blue got to number seven. There you go. You beat it the did, Eagles. I love it. You beat the Eagles. <laughs> How cool was that? That's fantastic. You can take that to your grave. <laughs> well, I was in shock, I must say. Yeah. Now, that same year, in 88, you uh, performed at the Royal Command Performance with, at the Bicentennial Concert with the... Uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales, how do you do, at the uh, Sydney Entertainment Centre. Were you a, a little uh, apprehensive for that performance? Well, the thing about it was it was actually live. I mean, it was proper live. Yeah. Um, and it was just one song, so you kind of race on and whatever. But the main thing about it was that it was going out to some number of billion people on television. Mm. And when you're doing something that's, you know, live to that sort of television audience, apart from the fact that there's royalty there, of course, um, then it's always incredibly nerve-wracking because, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Of course, um, yes. Yeah, forget the words, and, and anything. Well, it's, the, you know, it's more stuff like the you know, technical, you know, something breaking down or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, anyway, so yes, it was a, a great relief to 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 get, to get through that in one piece. I've got to say, and um, uh, and then um, of course we had to um, face the Fleet Street kind of lineup and stuff, um, and uh, and that all went horribly wrong because I missed the briefing, and so I did had no idea what, what you know the the manners sort of side of how to address a royal or any of that. Mm. So. Uh, fortunately, uh, Prince Charles was very, uh, very forgiving, and um, and in fact, one of the band, one of our band members, actually went to school with him in Scotland. Um, no, really, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think he, I think he was a couple of years younger uh, than Prince Charles, so he wasn't in the same year. But that that uh, infamous school, Gordonston in Scotland, Scotland, that's uh, you know, it features in the Crown as being. A pretty hard place. Well, that was our sax player, keyboard player, Simon Lloyd. He went to that school. Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives since 1934. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au Hi, this is Ivor Davies from Ice House, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. Now, in uh, 1990, you joined up with uh, the Sydney Dance Company uh, for the ballet Berlin now you you recorded the score there. Uh, what was did you have a brief or what was your vision for that? Look, it was kind of um, a, a sort of backwards process, really, because um, I decided I was going to record a covers album because I, I find songwriting quite um, difficult, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do something easy. Um, I'll, I'll record other people's songs. So I picked a whole bunch of my favourite songs from various uh, artists, <coughs> um, including David Bowie. Um, and I started recording them with a particular style and I worked with a pianist who I knew was a brilliant pianist. Um, and he 
he had worked with the dance company before, and I remember we were working away on these songs, and, and I turned to Max and said, Max, I can hear these songs as part of a ballet school for the Sydney Dance Company. Why don't we send some of these songs to Graham Murphy and see what he thinks? And Graham loved them. Um, and then we crafted the rest of the kind of incidental music around. I think we picked off the album, or off the completed number of songs, we picked um, seven songs. And then... Mm-hmm. Um, as part of the sort of uh, uh, performance, um, I, I appeared as a sort of character every now and again and, and sang these seven songs. And in fact, uh, the score was played by Ice House, really, who were tucked away under the stage. Um, gotcha. And um, yeah. the, the, the weirdest thing, though, that happened in the production of that was that I didn't realise we, we'd virtually finished the whole score and we weren't that far away from opening night when we discovered that there's a whole set of copyrights that only apply to theatre stage works that we didn't realise existed. And so I was working with Keith Welsh um, from Flowers who was managing uh, this uh, particular enterprise and he said, um, I've gone to the publishers of these songs and they said, no, no, to clear these grand rights, they're called, uh, we can't give permission on behalf of the writer. You have to actually get permission from the writer themselves. And so Keith had mm. to contact personally David Bowie, Brian Ferry from Roxy Music, um, mm. the writers from the Psychedelic Furs, Andy Partridge from XTC. And, and they all agreed, and that was all fine, except for the final song of the ballet, which was the big moment of the ballet, and it happened to be a song by the Velvet Underground, written by Lou Reed, and we couldn't get any answer from Lou Reed, and I was heartbroken because it seemed that we were going to have to change the whole end of the ballet before opening night and lose this song. And in desperation, we sent a recording of the song to Lou Reed's New York office, me thinking there is no way that he's going to find the time of day to listen to how many you know, how many cassette tapes is he... Sure. going to get a week, you know, yeah. from people. Anyway, yeah. overnight he yeah. sent... Uh, his his uh, his assistant sent a fax uh, that woke me up, in fact, when the fax machine went off. And it had a quote from Lou Reed, and I have it framed. He said, Congratulations. I couldn't have loved it more. I'm flattered to have such talent interpreting my music. Um, oh, and wow. How you good. can see that um, I've gone to no trouble whatsoever to remember that quote word for word. Mm. Um, yeah. And I was absolutely gobsmacked. And um, as I say, I have that framed on a wall, and, and so the whole thing went ahead as planned. But, um, oh. yeah, it was quite a moment to get that sort of a fax from Lou Reed. That's brilliant. I'm, sh- I'm sure uh, the Ballet Berlin was highly successful. Um, it was, in fact, the most successful ballet that the dance company ever had. And, in fact, when Graham Murphy finally retired from the dance company, he did a... Uh, revisited that ballet and ran a season of it as as the very final uh, ballet uh, that he, he did with the dance company. So it was a great honour, really. Oh, yeah, great salute to you. Wow. Now, you went a couple of years later, you went to L.A., and here we go again. You're back in the movies. You recorded the soundtrack for Peter Weir's uh, Master and Commander, the, um, the Far Side of the World, and you won another APRA Award for Best Soundtrack Album uh, and 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 that would have been an incredible journey for you. Well, the whole process was really extraordinary because, <clears throat> once again, I heart back to David Bowie's quote to me, you never know who will be listening, because what had happened was that I'd produced the music for the 25 minutes broadcast uh, from 
Sydney Opera House uh, of the of the countdown to the new millennium. So that right, went out to right. something like four billion people on television. And one of the people who was watching and listening that broadcast was Peter Weir. Uh, and so a few years on, when he was working away, he was actually he called me from um, on location. He was actually uh, in Baja, and said, "Listen, I've been listening to your piece of Millennium music, and I want you to write." Something like that for the for the for the movie. Uh, can you reassemble the team that you had that put all that together? And so I did. And I had to go to Hollywood and work on the Fox slot, which was quite extraordinary. And luckily, a good friend of mine and my music editor, um, Simon Ledley, uh, was very experienced with kind of top end uh, movies. And and as soon as we arrived on the Fox lot, you know, every third person was coming up to him and going, "Hey, Simon, haven't seen you for whatever." And so we sort of felt quite welcome there, but it was pretty intimidating because we're talking about using uh, the the absolute best, um, uh, I guess, movie soundtrack orchestra in the world uh, in probably mm-hmm. the best studio and most famous studio in the world, place place uh, called the Alfred Newman Scoring Stage where Marilyn Monroe had sung and, uh, you mm-hmm. know, Judy Garland mm-hmm. and a whole lot of people. So it was... It was it was quite a quite an experience the whole thing. Yeah, no pressure. No, not really. <laughs> we love pressure. <laughs> but you pulled it off, and you had a great time in LA. So I'm happy, and 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 look at the rewards you got from it. Now, speaking of awards, Ivor Davies, two APRA awards, a Mo Award, two APRA Screen Music Awards, a 2013 Queen's Birthday Honor. Your your Ivor. Arthur Davies, AM. That must have been a real thrill for you and your family. Oh, indeed. It was a very proud moment. And I have um, on my kitchen wall, I have uh, a photo of myself and my late father at the at, at Government House um, in Sydney. And I think the thing about it was is that um, a lot of what was involved in that was a lot of charity stuff uh, that I've been doing for many, 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 many years. And um, Sure. Uh, yeah. And so it really was kind of a reflection uh, of that as much as, you know, any contribution to music, um, I think possibly even more so. So, yes, a very proud proud moment. Now, Ivor, what else is left to do with you? It seems like you've created and achieved so much in your amazing career. What's going to excite you from now on? Well, you know, the thing, if I've learned anything at all... um, uh, the one thing I have learned is not to predict anything. Um, so, you know, just about every story that I've told you, just about every thing that happened, uh, seems you can kind of work out how it happened in hindsight, but at the time they seemed to be completely out of blue. For example, you know, I was literally sitting in my studio when the phone rang and Peter Weir was on the end of it calling from America yeah. um, and had that conversation. There was no way that I saw that coming. Um, and... You know, just about everything that's happened, really, I could kind of describe with the same amount of randomness. So there's no way I'm going to answer that question for you because I haven't got a clue what's going to happen. Yeah, it it always happens in a right place, right time. Now, to to wrap up the podcast today, Ivor, we have the top ten questions like we did on on Countdown, but these are the questions uh, without notice, so uh, I do apologise if I shock you. Uh, Question number ten. Who inspired you to make music? Who inspired me? Uh, you know, there's so many artists I could give credit to for that. Um, 
Strangely enough, um, probably Mark Bolan of T-Rex because he wrote the most annoyingly simple songs and all of my life I've tried to write a simple song and I still haven't succeeded. So, you know. Well, he had a, he had a groove, didn't he? He just made sure that there was a good riff and a good groove. Yeah, but, you know, that kind of ridiculous lyrics and, not, you know, nonsensical lyrics and he couldn't read. I don't know whether you knew that because he was no. very dyslexic. Um, he had to get his girlfriend to read to him. Um, but he loved the sound of words, so as a consequence, none of his lyrics make any sense at all, but they sound fantastic. <laughs> yeah, they do. All right, question number nine. What have you learnt over your musical journey? Well, I think I've just, as, uh, as I've just been describing to you, um, uh, I've, I've learnt not to predict anything. That's, that's, the, that's the main thing. So I, I don't do any long-term future planning. All right. So what was the effect of Countdown to your career? Well, the effect of Countdown was massive, and I think you know there wouldn't be an artist that was on Countdown that wouldn't wouldn't agree with that. Um, just the exposure was just incredible. Next, Molly with Humdrum. Molly's Humdrum is brought to you by WhiteGloveMover.com.au. Do yourself a favour and take the stress out of moving. Hi, this is Ian Molly with my dear dear friend Gavin Wood with his Countdown podcast. And with me, I have uh, the singer-songwriter himself, Mr. Ivor Davis. Well, welcome to Countdown again. Listen, first of all, congratulations on the album, uh, because I've been excited over a few albums this year. Dare was being, of course, one of them, Human League. But this one, I think, is just incredible. You must be very happy to be here. No, I am. It's the first time. For a long time, I've really been able to listen to something that I've done, so right. it's a good sign. Now, listen, going right back, uh, with the Ice House album, When You Were Flowers, uh, again, I was... Quite excited over that album. I declared it as one of the best debut albums I've heard from an Australian group. Uh, and Can't Help Myself, of course, was the first single. Can you just tell us a little bit about uh, Can't Help Myself and that entire uh, album of where you got the ideas from? <clears throat> the thing about Can't Help Myself was that at the time, Cameron Allen, you, you know him, producer, uh, producer uh, was about to undertake recording the album. Uh, and Can't Help Myself was a song that I'd only written about two days before we were due to start recording. Right. Um, and at that point, uh, he had another choice for a single. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and he so, he so liked that song that he said, listen, let's forget everything and do this song. So that was how Can't Help Myself was uh, picked as the first single. All right. And also, I don't know if you've even seen this, but there's a telex that your manager's just got. And this, in fact, here, folks, is all the ads for the first week, uh, all the American stations right across... There's something around about 70 of them already, and it's the fourth most added um, album this week in, in America, so that's not bad. So I think it's going to work all, all across for you. Thanks, Ivan. Congratulations. If you're thinking of moving house, do yourself a favour. The White Glove Mover can do the hard work. Call 139448. Hi, this is Ivan Davies from Ice House, and you're listening to Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. If you could open up a show for any artist, apart from David Bowie, uh, who would it be? Uh, these days, it would be Radiohead. I think um, I did see them once, uh, but, you know, I'd, I'd love to get in amongst that machinery. Yeah. Yeah, you create a little bit of carnage yourself. Indeed. <laughs> Question number six, name your three dinner guests, dead or alive. Oh, gee, that is... That's hard. Um... We can come back to it. Well, I'd, you know, it'd be interesting to have Bob Dylan, even if he was in a grumpy mood. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I think Mark Boland would be interesting too. Mm. Well, yeah. Um, so they'd probably be musicians. Um, yeah. And I don't think I'd want to go too far back in history to tell you the truth. Um, so mm, possibly John Lennon. Yeah. That Now that would be a lively table. Indeed. Question number five. What is your favourite song to perform? Look, I've got to say, and it seems obvious, but Great Southern Land is my favourite song to perform. And we we... It's a weird song because it's quite simple, and for whatever reason, we've ended up using it as our, our default sound check song for decades now. Because other than any other song, um, if we if we get that sounding right, we know the whole set is going to sound right. So it's the kind of go-to for lots of reasons. Actually, the the public probably wouldn't really know about. It's just a, sonically a perfect thing to tune up to. Well, Great Southern Land really is the anthem of our uh, of our lifetime, of our era, isn't it? It's just such a well. I know you can't say that, but I can. It's such a powerful song, and it says everything about our country. Well, thank you very much. And uh, you know, I, I didn't see it coming at all. It was uh, it was uh, the blue for me. Mm. Question number four: What is the most trouble Ivor Davies has ever gotten into? Yeah, no, I've managed to stay pretty clean, but um, there were, were a few brushes with substances along the way, I think. Uh, and you've grown up now and you're a better person. I am. <laughs> Question number three. If you could change anything about the music industry, what would you do? I don't know so much about the music industry these days just because I'm an old guy, but um, one thing that always troubled me right from the beginning was that the charts seemed to make songs into a kind of a horse race, you know, to mm. get to number one. Mm. Yeah. And I always found that sort of troubling because, you know, music is different things to different people and um, it, it, uh, I, I can't see, how, you know, that number one song is that better than the one at 12 or 15 or whatever, uh, if you know yeah. what I mean. I do. I, I know exactly what you mean. So let's do away with the charts. Well, it's 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 kind of proliferating anyway, with you know, with the Spotify's and the Apples of this world. Uh, you know, it, it's put the focus back on single songs, hasn't it? Indeed. All right. I know you don't want to comment comment on that because uh, we're all a bit annoyed how they've gone and taken all the songs. I just hope they put the rates up a little bit more. Ah, uh, yes, and I agree with that. Mm. Question number two. Only two to go. Uh, what's the best show that you've ever done? Oh, well, uh, it's a sort of unlikely one. We, uh, it was Madison Square Gardens. Uh, it was a Man of Colours tour. Uh, and it was just that moment. And John Oates, actually from Hall & Oates, came onto the stage with us and performed Electric Blue, and that was a bit of a moment. So there I am on the stage at Madison Square Gardens with John Oates of Hall & Oates on stage with me. It just doesn't get any better than that. Indeed. Final question in the top ten. What have you learnt and what would you pass on to a young, hopeful musician? Um, there are going to be setbacks. It's not all plain sailing. And deal with the trouble and the setbacks it really defines how you come out of the end of it, I think. Wise words. Ivor Davies, AM, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and hearing your story and, and all those great little stories. Thank you, mate, for the, the, the time you've taken to be on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Gavin Wood's Countdown podcast was thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.